0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajumang, and James Baxter, Partner at Tideway Wealth. The UK equity market has historically offered some of the best equity yields and continues to, but going ahead there are increasing concerns about the sustainability.
1: Kate, you've been looking at this. Why are people concerned about UK equity income? Um, Well, there are a few reasons why uh, the UK equity income market is kind of a bit concerning. Um, Firstly, it's the fact that it is, or UK income and dividends are concentrated in such a small number of stocks and sectors. So, for example, just four sectors going to contribute almost 70% of the UK's dividend haul uh, next year, or forecast to. Um, Oils, banks, insurance going to contribute 46% of that. And if you think that Shell accounted for almost 15% of all dividends last year, that's obviously pretty concentrated. Add to that the fact that UK companies are paying out an enormous amount of their earnings as dividends currently, and there's just not that much headroom for them to grow those dividends, particularly if they can't keep growing profits. So there are some kind of risks specific to the UK market there that we've got to think about.
0: Okay, and um, um, there's also some concerns because the recent attractive payouts we've enjoyed aren't
1: necessarily as high as they seem. Why is that? Well, this is because of weak sterling, which has really been flattering the payouts um, of UK companies ever since the UK's vote to leave the EU. Q1 headline uh, dividend increases in 2017 were up 9.5% compared to Q1 2016. Underlying dividend growth, uh, 16.2%. But actually, if you strip out the impact of currency fluctuations, underlying dividends fell. So clearly the pound's having a big impact there. Um, And the pound was was responsible. Responsible for ninety percent of the increase in FTSE one hundred dividends, so that's obviously something to, to be aware of.
0: Yeah, because that might not go on forever. Um, James, do you think UK equity income is at risk?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think everything that uh, you know we just mentioned on is a, is a risk. Um, uh, we can have a look at in a second at, at the currency impacts. Uh, you know, when we talk about international uh, income as well. But um, you know, clearly a, a worry must be that sterling's. Uh, strengthens from here, which is going to make it more difficult. And, and we do have this this high concentration. So I think where funds are focused very much on the FTSE 100 companies for those dividends, then I think investors need to be you know cautious.
0: Okay. Now, Kate, um, we've got all these concerns. So how can investors mitigate these risks and hopefully maintain the income stream
1: they get from their portfolios? Well, one way is to broaden your equity income horizons, I guess, and look overseas so that you hold equity income funds which don't just have UK equity income in them, but you might have global um, or other countries too, and spread your dividends between companies with low payout ratios today, but where you think those might grow, companies with a high yield today which might not grow, um, and, and ones with which have kind of a good record of long-term growth The idea being that you can just balance your income portfolio between high yield today and high yield tomorrow in the hope that you might get a more sustainable kind of income profile over time.
0: Okay, now you mentioned
1: global equity income funds. What would be uh, some good options there? um, so one is Fidelity uh, Global Dividend, and the goal of that fund is really long-term sustainable income. Uh, so the manager, Dan Roberts, he he prefers to look at total return rather than pricing a very high yield today, um, and so his portfolio is very well diversified both geographically and between sectors. Um, another one, M&G Global Dividend, that actually sits in the IA global sector, um, and its aim is to just deliver a dividend yield above that of the wider index. Um, And again, it has a slightly lower yield than maybe some other dividend funds, but again, kind of long-term sustainable income.
0: Okay. Now,
1: you said there were other uh, areas people could consider. What are these, Kate? Uh, Also, Asia and Japan are two areas which you might want to think about for income and some people might think that sounds a bit strange, particularly Japan where payout ratios have historically been incredibly low and where companies have kind of tended to hoard cash on their balance sheets. But so I guess starting with Asia, um, this is quite a good market for income um, or an increasingly good market for income because payout ratios have really been increasing there and income stocks are actually much cheaper than you might find in, you know, for example, the UK. Um, or the US. And yields are still pretty high. You can kind of easily get a yield of 3% from an Asian income fund. And you do also get some quite different kinds of sectors. You get more tech, for example, than you would get um, in the FTSE 100. Um, And just going back to Japan, now, obviously, pretty low yields currently, and low payout ratios for many of these companies. But there is some real evidence that things are changing. Um, both because Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has corporate governance in his sights as as something which he really wants to shift, and also things like the, the Japanese pension fund has been investing more in equities just due to such low bond yields, which is kind of driving better corporate governance. And you can really see that in recent years, dividends have increased from Jap- Japanese companies. So compared to other places in the world, other markets, The scope for dividend increases over time in Japan is just kind of more compelling than, for example, the UK, even though yields are lower now.
0: Okay, some interesting options there. So
1: um, what uh, funds could you access these areas with? So uh, Schroeder Oriental Income Fund is one example. Uh, It's run by very well-regarded manager Matthew Dobbs, and that yields 3.7%, so pretty high. That does include exposure to Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, other examples, uh, so one from Japan would be CC Japan Income and Growth, and that yields 2.4%, so not too bad. Um, and then that has things like uh, Bridgestone, which is a tyre company, um, and Japan Tobacco and other other stocks.
0: Okay. Um, James, what's your view on this? Do you think investors should turn to overseas equity income, and if so, which particular areas?
2: Yeah, well, I think I think the first thing we have to go is back to fundamentals and think about, you know, what happens when you start to invest overseas. And the big issue you've got to take into account is currency. So, so, you know, if people are starting to look at other markets outside of the UK, the first thing to do is get your head around what's been going on with sterling over the last few years. And the pattern is pretty clear. I mean, if we look at the three main currencies of dollars, euros and yens, then... I guess the biggest collapse has been against the yen, the Japanese currency. So we've seen virtually a halving in in the exchange rate between the yen and sterling from sort of pre-crisis 2007, uh, where it was about 240 yen to the the pound, all the way down to a low of about 120. And now we've got a bit of recovery up to sort of 143. Um, Similarly, in the dollar... It, it's not quite 50%, but it, it, it's still a big drop from sort of $2 to the pound down to 120 with a recovery to sort of 130. The euro is much more stable, you know, and the range is much tighter. So, sort of 150 pre crisis down to 119 at the moment with a low of about 106. So, and if we look at all of those, what you would see is probably at the moment we are still quite a bit below the long term averages in each of those currencies. You know, dollar is about 170 if you look at a long-term average the yen about 180 euro about 140 so you know the the i guess the the chances are and you never can say never i'm not a great believer in mean reversion when it comes to investment markets but the chances are the pound may start to recover from here having been very sold off in um in the recent months post the Brexit referendum. So in that scenario, what you're going to see is a reversal of what we've had in the last 18 months with international funds looking a lot better than UK funds. And actually, we'll see international funds struggling. So, you know, I looked at the Japanese sector, for example, and that's, you know, minus 7% for the last six months. um, Whereas we got UK sectors, you know, up up quite a bit, um, you know, five or 6%. So I think, you got, you know, caution is the watchword here. You make it more complicated when you go overseas, and you've got to understand that, you know, what what you're seeing in the past performance tables when you look now at the funds, is is unlikely to get repeated because we're mm-hmm. likely to have a swing in currencies going the other way, which is going to, uh, you know, be a headwind for these international funds rather than a tailwind.
0: Okay, I mean that said, do do you think people should completely avoid a, a global over and an overseas equity income or, or what should people no, do? No, I think
2: I think well, I think first first and foremost there's a number of things that you mm. can do. I mean, first and foremost there's some interesting areas in the UK market. Um, you know, we particularly like the small and mid cap sector mm. which has got more domestic earnings typically and so it's not going to suffer like the FTSE 100 will suffer if 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 there is a a swing back in the currency. But also, um, I think you're perhaps safer in more generalist funds where the managers can take a view on, um, you know, which which areas of the market they're in. And also, you know, potentially funds that can hedge the currency. I mean, it gets a bit complicated. I remember we talked about this in a previous podcast. But obviously, you can get exposure Mm -hmm. to markets. For example, the U.S. market. If Trump is successful in lowering the dollar exchange rate, when generally. you say
0: generous funds, what do you mean? Do you mean a global equity income fund? Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, yeah,
2: yeah, and for example, like you're talking about Asia and Japan. Mm. You know, I would generally favor an Asian mm. fund, including Japan, than necessarily going specifically for a Japanese fund.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um on that note, then, um, what overseas equity income funds would you suggest?
2: well i think you know we we quite like uh, value in europe at the moment um and again you know the, the the exchange rate risk there is much smaller because we've obviously got a tighter band um so we we quite like standard life's uh european um equity income fund um we have historically for the last uh 2 years had an exposure to um uh jupiter uh, uh, income but we you know the international income but we're selling that at the moment in favor of european uh, okay. funds
0: Yeah. Thank you, James. And you can see the full selection of overseas equity income funds that Kate suggests in this week's magazine and the website. Now, we mentioned Japan as an emerging area for income, but it can also be a good option for growth, despite the dire headlines about its economic situation, if you pick the right fund. Emma, you recently interviewed a manager who runs a Japan fund that has made very good returns, which is this.
3: Say so that's Bailey Gifford Japan Trust, which is run by well-regarded manager Sarah Whitley.
0: Okay. Now, um, Sarah says the economic situation, which maybe has been dire in Japan, is actually improving. Why is this?
3: That's right. I mean, the Japanese economy is picking up with steady, if not exactly stellar, growth. And um, the yield on 10-year Japanese government bonds, which has been negative um, last year, has now moved into low-positive territory. Inflation is also starting to pick up, which is a very welcome change from the deflation the country has suffered from
0: okay um now Sarah also said things are improving at corporate level among Japanese companies so uh how 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 are they making things better
3: well, um, the number of independent directors is increasing on Japanese boards, and so she thinks that actually this is going to lead to more Japanese companies. Um, paying out dividends as a um, better board culture um, gets bedded in.
0: Okay. Um, now, Sarah's been investing Bailey Gifford Japan in what she describes as future growth areas. What, what are these and you know what are examples of uh, companies in these areas?
3: Well, she's seen a lot of opportunities in robotics, internet companies and biotech. Um, and some examples include Cyberdyne, which makes advanced mind-control robots to help people suffering from spinal injuries. Um, one of their internet um, companies is online clothing retailer StartJ, which is one of the best-performing companies in the trust last year. And a recent buy is a biotech company called PeptoDream. So it's a drug discovery company, and its share price actually rose 20% um, earlier this year after they signed a deal with Johnson & Johnson Affiliate.
0: Okay. Now while Bailey Gifford Japan fund overall has done well, unfortunately some of its individual holdings haven't done so well recently. Why is this and you know what are these?
3: Well, two car pan- two car manufacturers that the trust owns, Saburi and Mazda, underperformed due to fears about increased tariffs from um the US yeah. given the rhetoric um mm. that we've heard from President Trump about more um, rhetoric exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's the reason that those two companies have underperformed.
0: Okay. Um, Now, he's spouted a lot on a lot of things. Um, Is Sarah concerned about uh, the Trump effect on um, Japanese car companies?
3: Um, She's not, actually. She takes some comfort from the fact that the first foreign leader that President Trump met was a Japanese prime minister. Um, And she also thinks that um, his priorities are more likely to be North Korea and China rather than dealing with a trade deficit with Japan and of course with tariffs i mean if um there is a policy to increase tariffs in the us against foreign um you know cars that would increase the cost for americans buying uh, cars as well so she just doesn't think that that's a uh, you know vote winning policy basically
0: Okay, so if he's got any sense, he won't do it. But Mm. then uh, it may be seen if Donald Trump has any sense. (laughs) Anyway, James, you were saying that when it comes to equity income, you think a generous fund is better and you'd avoid Japan income funds. But what about growth? Do you think Japan's a good place for growth and would he go for single country Japan funds? No. (laughs) <laughs> okay.
2: yeah. I'm going to stick to my uh, strategy here, and and actually, I, I I did a couple of things this morning uh, thinking about this. One is I I realised that actually we're quite Japanophile in a, the Baxter household, so we happen to have a big Sony TV screen on the wall. We've got a Toyota Prius outside mm-hmm. the house, and I thought, oh yeah, we've got Samsung phones and a Sa-, and I just bought a Samsung washing machine as Isn't well. Isn't that Korean? But Samsung is yeah. Korean, correct? <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. So and actually. Uh, I looked up Samsung, and Samsung's been tearing up the streets. I mean, that's up about 80% in the Mm. last 12 months. But as we Mm. say, it's a Korean stock. So then, again, another thing I did was I just had a look um, at the Trustnet uh, statistics uh, in FE Express, basically. And um, you could just look at sectors there, and you can get a real nice picture of what's going on. And and broadly, there are 38 sectors that the... the, um, uh, Investment Association tracks mm. and I just sort of uh, rank them by annual performance over the last you know year to date and the previous four years and, a, and an interesting pattern emerged so if we take Japan for example um, the, the pattern is thus coming from sort of 2013 and working forwards it was ninth out of 38, 32nd out of 38, third out of 38, 11th out of 38, 26 out of 38 so Volatile. What you mm-hmm. see there is volatility. Now, I mean, um, Emma mentioned the sort of techs and the telecoms, and I thought, well, let's have just a quick look at the IA mm-hmm. tech and telecom sector, which is another sector you can track, and the pattern is quite different. So same same periods, we get six, 7th, 6th, 6th out of uh, 38 fund sectors. So I think I rest my case, basically, which is that actually... Mm-hmm. What you're really trying to chase is good quality companies here, uh, and, and when you're looking for growth, you want you know you want exciting companies that are, are in high-growing areas and and doing well. And I think the generalist managers who are going to be more prevalent in the I.A. tech and telecom sector, uh, fidelity uh, mm. technology, for example, was one which holds some Japanese, has some Korean stocks, but these managers I think have got a much better chance of delivering consistent growth returns than making a macro bet that, you know, the yen is going to continue to strengthen mm. and the Japanese stocks will do well. I, I, it was interesting to hear Emma talk a little bit about um, uh, corporate governance in Japan. You know, I think we need to understand that the stock market and the stock holdings in Japan are very different. There's a lot of cross holdings. It's a very, very different stock market mm. to the US market, the European or the, the UK market. And also we mustn't forget that, you know, it was the... Uh, it, it is the market that goes down in history is probably having the biggest bubble ever. In that, um, probably all before your times, mm-hmm. but in two thousand in nineteen ninety, this market uh, peaked at uh, with the Nikkei index hit about forty thousand, and and it's still fifty percent of that. And along the way, we've had some horrendous, um, you know, bear markets in mm-hmm. Japanese equities, which have been with the currency added on top in the sixty to seventy percent. So. I think buying single country funds, it was a bit of a, you know, it's interesting if you're trying to plot the MSC World Index, then obviously you have to have some country funds. But I think it's a bit of a fad from sort of asset allocation that somehow allocating to all these different countries gave you some level of diversification. Mm. And I think that's been proven not to really work because they're, you know, in the end, they're very highly correlated. And I think you get better out of a fund manager by giving them a... um, scope to invest in, in a in an area or a theme that they know well and giving them a global brief rather than a country specific brief.
0: Okay. Now you mentioned um a Fidelity Technology Fund. Are there any other of these wider thematic funds, are, yeah, well, yeah, like I think uh,
2: Bally Gifford is a great example of a company that has a, an amazing uh, track record in the in the sort of tech sector in the U.S. space. So, um, Scottish Mortgage, for example, investment trust, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, if you a look generous
0: fund, but with a tech flavor, yeah, it is. And I mean,
2: mm. that, that, I own that personally, and uh, and I think what's quite good about that is it makes me have an exposure to companies which I would never find myself buying because mm. i just find them too scary the valuations are very scary but it's and it like,
0: owns quite a few unquoted which we couldn't buy anyway exactly doesn't it? things yeah. like
2: you know tesla alibaba mm. these are the companies that you know are clearly doing amazing things in the world and um you know i think that that sort of growth story is probably much more compelling over the next decade than whether japan will end up being a good economic macro bet or not
0: Okay, thank you, James. And you can read more about the companies that Bailey Gifford Japan Fund holds in this week's magazine and the website. Now, pension freedoms were introduced two years ago and were supposed to improve the situation for those drawing a retirement income. For example, allowing you to take some or all of your pension pot after the age of 55. But two years on, and it seems that one of the main beneficiaries of pensions freedoms is actually HM Treasury. Emma, why is this? Um,
3: You're very right, Leonora. I mean, the reason is the government has made five times more tax on the pension freedoms than they estimated they would when they first introduced them. So the original estimated the tax take would be 0.3 billion in the 2015-16 tax year. But in the event, this actually totaled 1.5 billion, so... A fair bit more.
0: Okay, um, happy for the government. Um, What exactly does it mean for investors?
3: Well, it suggests that investors are paying more tax than expected and possibly making more mistakes when using the freedoms. Um, So it's something for them to consider when they're thinking about wanting to withdraw a cash lump sum or use income drawdown.
0: Okay, so uh, when you've got pension freedoms, you've got risks. Um, I mean, what risks should you be most concerned about and what can you do about them?
3: Well, the risk, um, as well as the risk of this unexpectedly higher tax bill, you've also got the big risk of possibly running out of money if you take too much of your money from your pot um, or you use drawdown in an unsustainable manner. So that's that's something to be concerned about as well. Mm, but if you are concerned, what can you do? Well there's a few things you can do. The financial planners we spoke to said that most people could benefit from taking a mixed approach to retirement income. So using some of the of their pot for an annuity and to, which gives you a guaranteed income for life and also using part of their pot for income drawdown and as what, drawing on other forms of um, ca- um, income if they've got it through ISIS for example. Another thing you can do is um, if you're planning to take a cash lump sum from your pension, you could stagger it over several years, as doing so will make end up will make you pay less tax tax rather than you would have done if you just took it all in one go.
0: Okay, um, James, what would you say are the main risks of pension freedoms?
2: Yeah, I guess the two big risks are are people doing. Um I think people accessing the money is is perhaps overblown as a risk. I think people on the whole are being quite um, sensible about the way they access the money. I do worry that some people probably are taking the wrong kind of investment uh, bets post uh, it, or as they go into the decumulation phase. So um, it's a bit of a specialist subject of ours, but because uh, mm. we specialize in that sort of at retirement uh, yeah. income provision. And it's very different, you know. When you when you we we coin a phrase, irreplaceable capital. When you're dealing with irreplaceable capital, where you haven't got that regular savings going on, uh, you do have to have a bit more uh, discipline and be more careful with your money. And I think the point Emma raised about the longevity is also um, both fascinating and a, and, a, and a risk. I mean, the, the the issue there, and it's quite interesting because a lot of advisors focus on average mortality. And average mortality has been creeping up and actually now has levelled off a little bit. But it is, you know, we're all going to live probably on average four or five years more than we would have done if we were all 30 years younger. But I don't think that's the real issue and because, you know, I think that's well publicised and people kind of know that and they're working a bit longer. So actually the retirement might be the same. But I think the real risk is in the spread of mortality. So, you know, what we're still seeing is a lot of people uh, not making it into their late 70s who fall you know, foul of the big killers, cancer, heart attacks, strokes, which still take a lot of us in our late 60s, early 70s. But then we've got this other side of the population who get through that. Mm. And then if you're healthy in your mid-80s, you've now got a pretty high chance of living to 100. So you've got this massive spread of okay. mortality, which could mm. be 30 years between somebody who, you know, passes away in their early 70s and somebody who lives on into their 90s and people have to deal with that with their planning, basically.
0: Okay, I mean, do you have any kind of, like, tips on... I Get some advice. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I think, yeah, you know, you, you, need to, you,
2: you need to do some sort of mm. sustainability mm. Uh, calculation and look at what you're drawing uh, and see whether it's possible. I mean, I think, I think the, the risk of pension freedoms being unwound now by politicians is probably pretty low. For the mm-hmm. reason that you've raised, Emma. I mean, <laughs> the tax take is—that's a mm. statistic I hadn't heard, but mm. it doesn't surprise me. It has been mm-hmm. quite positive to the economy. It's—you know—we're seeing a lot of money uh, freed up being spent by you know people in their late fifties, early sixties. Um, so I think it's popular with with voters. It's popular with the government, and I think that the annuity. Uh, you know, the sort of annuity methodology of producing retirement income, given that enormous uh, kind of risk over longevity, I- is is not great, because it's very, very expensive now to buy your income through an annuity. So people are going to have to deal with holding that risk themselves. And that needs to ju- they just got to do some careful planning. Uh, you know, wh- one thing that we, we find is what's quite interesting is where people shift from uh, you know, particularly where it's a couple and it's one breadwinner who's maybe earning mm. the income to a couple living off their income from a bunch of savings, be they in ISAs and SIPs and things, is that they can crush their sort of average tax rate. Mm. Um, you know, and it's not unusual to see people with an average, you know, if you're earning 130000 for example, these mm. days, that's just horrible for tax. You know, you get these higher rates above 100000 So you average out at about 36 or 37%. But if you've got your money spread over ISAs and in investment accounts and in a, in a pension funds and you're careful with your withdrawals and you plan it properly, you know you can get your tax take right down to about seven percent, mm. and that means you can have less income but the same net spendable income, which is you know quite key to the planning process, basically.
0: Okay. Now, Emma, is there anything else with regard to pensions freedoms um, that investors need to consider at the moment?
3: Yes, another issue to be aware of is, be aware of is if you choose to access your pension by taking a lump sum, um, but you're still working and planning to make further pension contributions, these are going to be restricted um from forty thousand, which is what you would normally be able to do, to ten thousand. Um, this is known as the money purchase annual allowance. And the government has actually been planning to cut this figure figure from ten thousand to just four thousand pounds. So that's something else that people need to be aware of that. Um right now it's ten thousand, but it could fall further.
0: Mm. But um I mean I think the government isn't actually going ahead of this at the moment, um, due to the elections. So if the government, you know, has put it on hold and for all we know actually not gonna do it. Isn't it something you don't need to worry about?
3: Um, well, not really, because we as you say, we don't we don't know and the motivation does seem to be to putting mm. this policy on hold does seem to be the general election. So if a new government comes into power, this policy could be backdated and still be applicable from sixth of April, for example. Therefore I think that people should actually just carry on with the assumption that it could be brought in until we find out that it definitely isn't going to be brought in.
0: Okay. James, do you think that the cut to the money purchase, or let's say the proposed cut to the money purchase allowance, will go ahead and uh, should investors prepare for it?
2: I have no idea whether it will go ahead. I think that um, for sure the government will keep fiddling around with these rules. But I think that one, the, the, the and I did check this last night because I, I thought, you know, am I right, am I Right. And, and I'm a pensions advisor, and I've got the specialist mm-hmm. qualifications, but it just shows how difficult these rules are to understand, uh, to make sure that you're on solid ground when you, when you give advice on this area. This only applies to most people. There are a few exceptions, but this only applies to most people where they access the flexible income, not the tax-free cash sum. Mm. So... Actually, what we find in the pattern of behaviour with people is that really what they generally do first and foremost is access the tax-free cash sum. And if you stick to the twenty-five percent tax-free cash sum, this this uh, reduction in the allowance doesn't apply. There are some rules about circulating money which you mm-hmm. have to be aware of. So you, you there are some rules that stop you basically taking the tax-free cash sum and then making very large contributions to pension um, to to sort of wash through tax relief. But generally speaking. I, th- I think this is a rule that, you know, it's complicated. It ain't going to apply to the vast majority of people because mm-hmm. they're just not doing something that means that it's it, it, it's coming in a lot. I, I think that the one area where it, it might have an impact is people are being auto-enrolled into pension mm-hmm. contributions and some of them may already be taking, you know, flexible access and then doing a job on top of that and they may just breach it without realising that they've done it. But that that seems to me the only kind of real area where this has got much of a bite. So I'm not. I, I think it's not a big issue to be honest.
0: Okay. Thank you, James and Emma. Some really helpful points. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang at Investors Chronicle, and James Baxter, partner at Tideway Wealth. You can read more on overseas equity income. Bailey Gifford Japan Fund and avoiding the pitfalls of pensions freedoms in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.